Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zosa. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective and we're coming to you live in Johannesburg, South Africa. We are on the frequencies 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 11925 kHz on the 19 meter band to West Africa as well as DSTV's audio bouquet Channel 802. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Jalani Tulo, Tabisolo Hoko and Figile Lingwati. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, Ebola death toll in the DRC rises to 55 and SADC leaders vowed to eliminate malaria in the region. In economics news, Egypt signs new oil and gas exploration agreements and in sports news, South African Football Association to launch a national women's league. But first up the news with Shalane Tulo. Thank you, Lulu. Good morning. All Zimbabwean police have been recalled from leave to be deployed outside the Constitutional Court and around the country. This as MDC Alliance leader Nelson Chamisa challenges President-elect Emerson Mnangagwa's election victory. Zimbabweans will follow the proceedings in court on the Zimbabwe Broadcasting Corporation in the country and the diaspora. The MDC says South African advocates Dalimpofu and Tembeka Ngukaitobi, who arrived on Tuesday night, have the clearance to appear in court and Takwanangatani reports. The Zimbabwe chapter of the Media Institute of Southern Africa, MISA, lost a court bid to allow independent producers to live stream the proceedings. This means other broadcasters will pay the ZBC either 13,500 US dollars per day or 1,500 per hour to beam the live feed. Zimbabwe police say any disruptions will be dealt with without fear or favor and they are expected to be on high alert following the heavy-handed deployment of the army that killed six people. A total of 46 candidates, including the incumbent president and his two predecessors, are seeking to contest Madagascar's presidential polls at the end of the year. The court will now assess the candidates' eligibility and confirm by Sunday which ones will be allowed to stand in the first round of the elections. The vote scheduled for November 7th comes after an outbreak of protests that forced President Reggie Heri Rajao Narimam Pianina to accept the formation of a cons- consensus government tasked with organizing a fresh poll. If no candidate receives more than 50% in the first round, a second round of voting will be held on December 19th. South Africa's former Deputy Finance Minister Mkribi Sijonas is set to be the next witness when the state capture inquiry reconvenes on Friday in Johannesburg. It's expected to question Jonas on his allegations that the Gupta brothers offered him the position of Finance Minister weeks before Ntlantlanene was fired from the position along with a payment. National Treasury official Nleleni Matebula was first to testify at the inquiry on Tuesday. He painted a grim picture of the abuse of procurement processes by some government departments and has suggested that a special tribunal should deal with procurement transgressions. I think that's something that we need to look at in the review of the Treasury regulations, a framework to see whether we can't review that particular process. Because in my own experience, I've learned that we can change law at any time if you want to, to fit what you need. 
provided it is consistent, of course, with the Constitution. So it's something that one can always look at, because I'm just thinking that we have this prescript in the regulations. So as we review, something that we can explore and see how practicable it could be, but it is worth looking at. A tanker has gone missing off the coast of Gabon with 17 Georgian soldiers on board. Officials say the ship disappeared from tracking screens on August 14th. The potential search area is between the Gabonese coast and the Sao Tome and Principe. The vessel is reported to be owned by a Greek company, Lotus Shipping. In a statement issued, the Georgian Foreign Ministry said a search operation was being conducted with the help of the British maritime authorities. And finally, developed Developments in two separate court cases in the U.S. involving figures uh, previously close to President Donald Trump have cast a shadow over his presidency. In New York, his former lawyer Michael Cohen has pleaded guilty to tax and bank fraud and campaign finance violations. In the second court case in Virginia, the jury found Trump's former campaign manager Paul Manifold guilty of tax and bank fraud. The BBC's John Sopel reports. In a presidency not exactly marked by calm, the past 24 hours must rank as the most turbulent yet. Two senior aides are now convicted felons, yes, but where does this leave Donald Trump? The president's counsel, Rudy Giuliani, was swift in urging people to move on with a terse, there's nothing to see here statement. The president had done nothing wrong and Michael Cohen was a liar. But Cohen's lawyer says his client swore under oath that Donald Trump had directed him to commit a crime, making the president a co-conspirator. Most constitutional lawyers agree you can't charge a sitting president with a crime as you would an ordinary citizen, which leaves the nuclear option, impeachment. For Channel Africa, I'm Cholani Tulo. The Ebola outbreak in the Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo has claimed 55 lives since the start of the month, the authorities said on Monday, as the government announced free treatment against the disease for the next three months. The Health Ministry's latest bulletin said that the death toll had been increased following five new victims in Mabalako, Mangina, close to Beni, the epicenter of the outbreak in the North Kivu province. Januel Bamweze reports from Kinshasa. The molecule has been discovered by both the NIH in the United States of America and this country's INRB, the National Institute for Biomedical Research here in the Democratic Republic of Congo. The first patient to get treated with this new medicine against the Ebola hemorrhagic fever are those of Mangina in the Beni territory in the eastern province of North Kivu, where at least 55 people have been killed by the Ebola epidemic. This is indeed an important progress that has been made. I asked the INRB epidemiologist who contributed to the discovery, how was this done until the medicine is now available for patients? Dr. Jean-Jacques Mouyembe. monoclonal antibodies which developed from the blood of a survivor of Ebola. The blood was sent to NIH United States and the monoclonal antibodies was developed there. We call that molecule MAB140. We started to administer these monoclonal antibodies to 10 patients in Mangina, North Kivu. All the patients are alive and uh, nobody presented a severe side effect. So it is a, a very important progress to treat patients with Ebola. Non-patients die.
our patients who were treated with MIB-14, all of them are alive. And yesterday, the first two patients who were treated were discharged from the hospital. This is indeed a very good news, but the situation remains complicated due to insecurity in the area where Ugandan rebels of the ADF, the Allied Democratic Forces, continue to attack inhabitants. Such an insecurity situation makes it very difficult for the follow-up of the Ebola-infected patients and their contacts, especially in the remote zones. But the way continues according to Dr. Jean-Jacques Mouyembe. We continue to work and to administer this medicine and to increase the number of our patients. The number of patients is increasing, but the situation is very difficult because you know uh, the province is uh, a conflict area. So it is very difficult for the follow-up of the contact and also to find a patient. So it is very different from other outbreaks that occur in the RC. There is no idea of the cost of this new medicine up to now, but the good news is that the Democratic Republic of Congo's government has announced the free treatment for the next three months. This is to remove the financial barrier that could dissuade the population from going to health centers. That's indeed what the mayor of Beni, Nyonyi Buanakawa, explained. The government has decided free services for any Ebola-related test up to medicine and treatment. This free treatment is only for public health centers, and the three months started on Monday, August 20th, 2018. 18. Meanwhile, the medical team in charge of fighting the disease has revised downwards the estimated number of people who may have had contact with the virus from over 2,000 to 1,609. Jean-Noël for Channel Africa in Kinshasa. The fight against malaria in southern Africa received a boost this past weekend with 16 heads of state from the region signing a new commitment to eliminate the mosquito-borne disease by 2030. This happened during the South African Development Community Summit in the Namibian capital, Windhoek. The commitment follows another regional commitment made in 2009 by what has now come to be known as the Elimination 8, a set of SADC countries. While there has been great progress on the disease in the last 15 years, a recent outbreak in the region exposed just how fragile that progress can be. More from Dr. Richard Kwamwi, the Elimination 8 Ambassador and former Minister of Health of Namibia. We are faced with a gigantic problem. A region like Sadak, where you are talking of well over 36 million, in 2016, we recorded something like 47,000 cases. I mean, this is simply unacceptable. And you are talking of at least two under five children dying every minute. The four countries, that is Botswana, Namibia, South Africa, and Eswatini. But the rest, it's a real huge problem. Malaria in this region, and not only in this region, but the whole sub-Saharan Africa kills more people than any other disease. Take note of that. Now, we know that countries have made tremendous progress over the years, largely as a result of robust political commitment. What else can we credit this progress to? Yes, indeed, that progress was realized. I can share you unreservedly in E8, that is 
the eight countries who said together in 2009, by the way, under my chairmanship, ministers of health, and decided that if we work together, no doubt we will be in a position to synchronize our programs, not only malaria, but diseases such as HIV, AIDS, and TB, amongst others. If you work together, you strengthen your border collaboration, you'll eventually see the success. We brought together expertise on malaria. We shared data. We shared the resources together. We were able to bring malaria to a point that we were earmarked, that is, of the four countries, were earmarked by the World Health Organization that, yes, indeed, we can eliminate malaria. And the other four, second line, being Angola, Zambia, Zimbabwe, and Mozambique, we saw again another significant decline. I'll give you some examples. The two countries of Zambia and Zimbabwe, around Livingstone Bay, around the Victoria Falls, those areas, they used to be endemic of malaria. Are they still endemic? Elizabeth, I can tell you they are no longer endemic. In Mozambique, Maputo province, it used to be endemic of malaria. But is it still endemic? The answer is no. But at the same time, doctor, funding for malaria has dwindled in some countries. How does one country's failure to invest in its malaria program affect the entire region's response? Let me tell you, there is not a single country, no matter her status, that will claim to eliminate malaria, needless to talk of eradication, without the support of a neighboring country. The reason is very simple. There is a shared enemy, and that enemy we call anophilin vectors. They are female anophilin mosquitoes which transmit malaria, and they do not need passports to cross from country A to country B. Mosquitoes, when they move from Mozambique to Eswatini, from South Africa to Eswatini, from Angola to Namibia. They don't carry passports. And so are human beings carrying along with them parasites, which is known as Plasmodium falciparum in Southern Africa. These human beings, we trade in Sadak. There is free movement of people. There is intermarriage. We move from one country to another, of course, carrying our passport. I do know countries like Botswana, Namibia, Eswatini, and South Africa, they have beefed their domestic funding. But countries like Angola, it's not the same. Namibia would have long eliminated malaria, but most of the cases are coming from there. Similarly, it would have been the same for South Africa. But with Mozambique, whoa, forget. Let's talk about the commitment that was made this past weekend to eliminate malaria. What does it call for and what makes it different from previous ones? They committed themselves, the 16 heads of 
state and government to beefing up the resources to sharing the data. It had never happened. It is the E8, the Elimination Aid, who drafted the malaria declaration more than a year ago, and we forwarded it to SADC Secretariat. And I am extremely grateful that for the first time, our heads of state and government, they resolved that enough is enough. They should never allow a pregnant woman who should be giving life but instead dies from a disease which is both preventable and curable, that no under five child should die from a disease that is both preventable, curable, and we have the tools. That's Dr. Richard Kamui, the Elimination 8 Ambassador and former Minister of Health in Namibia, speaking to Elizabeth Lidecha. Saying goodbye is never easy. I have spent most of my life working with the United Nations. I feel it is my home. I can think of no other job in the world that would have been so rewarding. It has been an extraordinary privilege to serve as Secretary General. I have often said that you can take the man out of the UN, but you can't take the UN out of the man. Thank you once again, my dear friends and colleagues. I will count on you to carry on your indispensable work, and I wish you all success in the years ahead. Channel Africa. Sierra Leone's President Julius Madabayo has launched a free education program for primary and secondary school children starting from September, fulfilling one of his key election pledges. While no financial details were provided about the overall cost of the scheme, Bayo says he will donate three of his monthly salaries to fund the scheme. Bayo took office in April after a tumultuous election campaign ending a decade-long rule by the All People's Congress Sierra Leone journalist Elias Bangura has more. President Bill launched the free education yesterday uh, at the Meata Conference Hall in Central Africa. Uh, it was a momentous occasion. In any case, the whole country was awash with the news. Uh, before now, five months back, or even way beyond that, in his uh, campaign, during his campaign, he had promised that uh, starting from pre primary all throughout the primary itself, junior and senior secondary schools, um, that Education is going to be free for government and government-assisted schools. And yesterday was the launch of that particular program. And at the program, what he said particularly was that, um, well, many people think it can't be done. But here is proof now that it has been done in the sense that plans are already underway and supporters are all over the place supporting this program, including the DCAD, including Save the Children, UNICEF, many and a host of other partners. All of this we are on board at the, at the launch yesterday. We are in the program launch at the U building. Now, One, have any financial in details provided yet, uh, Mr. Bangura, about the overall cost of the scheme and how this free education will be funded? The free education, the funding for the free education from the national budget, 
is going to have 21% from the, of the overall national budget, 21%. That's quite an amount anyway for any entity, any ministry to, to get at one sitting. But going forward, they said it's 21% as, as for a start. And uh, I was mentioning that uh, at yesterday, it was not just the launch of the program, but it was also, there was also a launch of the, the basket fund for this free education, wherein donations came in, numerous donations, starting with the president himself, who said uh, his three months, salary going forward that is for september october and november he is going to put it uh, into that basket fund and many several other ministers and people of goodwill institutions also donated so there's going to be a basket fund to fund this particular free education the and announcement then, has also come with a stern warning here for parents from president madabio isn't it because he has warned parents that mm-hmm. they will be fined or even jailed if they they don't mm-hmm. send their children to school. Yeah, right. He said that. Yes, he mentioned that. He mentioned that. that uh, I mean, there will be consequences for anyone. I mean, uh, I mean, who refuses to send his or her child or ward to school? And everybody else knows that uh, the president is a disciplinarian. He stands by his word. And uh, we are waiting to see him because this is a huge burden that has been taken off the the shoulder of parents and guardians. I mean, school fees has been a whole lot of issues. For myself, as an example, um, when I lost my father during the war, my father was a traditional chief. He had eight wives and there were over two dozen children taking care of them paying their fees and all of this i mean all that burden fell on me and thankfully yes inside the last kid who was born on may uh, uh, june 15 of 1998 just finished writing his uh, senior secondary he's now he has now applied for college but uh, to get that to, for, from starting from primary on through to senior secondary i mean you don't pay cents uniforms are provided along with cortex books i mean this is a huge step that's uh, Elias Pangura Sierra Leone, a journalist on the line from the capital Freetown, speaking to Kumbela Munjalele. It's 8.22 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Now going back in time to today in 1978, Kenya's founding father, President Jomo Kenyatta, dies in office. His son Uhuru is the current president of Kenya. Today in history... 1978. South African Revenue Service executives giving evidence at the Nugent Commission of Inquiry into the Revenue Service say the new operating model introduced by suspended SARS Commissioner Tom Moyani had devastating consequences on the institution and the economy as a whole. The second edition of the Commission of Inquiry into Tax Administration and Governance at SARS resumed in Pretoria on Tuesday. Naledi Ngobo reports. SARS research executive Dr. Rendell Carolison says SARS was in good health before restructuring was introduced under suspended SARS commissioner Tom Moyani's leadership. Dr. Carolison says the new operating model resulted in the exodus of experienced staff under collection in customs access, vet and pay as you earn. Revenue growth from customs access indeed slowed to 1%. So that promise didn't come through or didn't fulfill itself. Compliance with taxpayers continue to slide. With taxes such as pays you earn and VAT, which are collected on behalf of SARS money, it's agency money, uh, especially worrying. 
the number of returns not filed for payers return had slipped from 16.1 in 2008 or 9 to 31% in 2017-18. Dr. Carolison says they were told that the new model would close the tax gap and decentralize the concentration of power in the organization. However, the model did the opposite of what it was intended to do. I read the Bain submission. They said in their submission that they don't have a problem with this grouping because, because this grouping is not really a concentration of power because it's only the business and individual taxes that were combined. They forgot to add the factory that was also added. So, so there is something that needs, a question needs to be asked about that. Why, if your design principles, rightly or wrongly, stated off from the start that you are going to find a way to deconcentrate power, you did exactly the opposite. Dr. Carolison says trusting relationships were eroded and taxpayer compliance began to slip during Moyani's tenure at the revenue collector. SAR staffers would be telling you that the period commencing late 2014 was probably the most traumatic in their professional careers. Once trusting relationships became defined by paranoia and distrust, engagement with external stakeholders became strained, and taxpayers began to show signs of withdrawal as voluntary compliance continued to slip. It was within this turmoil that the consultations and reviews were carried out by the Bain Consulting Group. SARS Executive Dr. Tabelo Malovele says when his position in the Risk and Compliance Division was made redundant, tax compliance suffered. He says definitions of target areas were changed to improve personal income tax and corporate income tax compliance. We couldn't set compliance targets and we could not report on those uh, compliance targets were outside of that. Other people took over um, that responsibility. Now, the challenge was when the definitions were changed to make the compliance look better for PIT and CIT. The SARS inquiry will take place every day for the next two weeks until the 31st of August. I'm Naledi Ngobo in Pretoria. Veteran South African human rights lawyer George Bezos has come out strongly in defense of former President Nelson Mandela. Bezos, who was Madiba's lawyer and close friend, has rubbished the idea that Mandela sold out in negotiations with the former government before he became the country's first democratically elected president. Bezos was addressing the 89th birthday celebrations of the late struggle icon Ahmed Kathrada held at the Johannesburg Muslim School. Was there. Rivonia trial lawyer advocate George Bezos has criticized what he calls a small group of people who accused former President Nelson Mandela of being a sellout. Some have labeled Mandela a sellout, saying he made concessions which gave black people political freedom but not financial freedom. However, Bezos says Mandela dedicated his life to liberate South Africa. Bezos also says he feels the role that Mandela played in achieving a democratic South Africa is being downplayed by some within the country. Bezos defends Mandela to the hilt. I feel very strongly about it because I believe that Nelson Mandela said it in the 50s, said it in the 60s in court. I think that the present uh, suggestions by people who uh, did not want to accept what not only Nelson Mandela said, but South Africa as a whole. Iso Pahad, who served as a minister in the presidency during President Tabumbegi's administration, called on students at the Johannesburg Muslim School 
to be at the forefront of fighting racism. He has encouraged them to maintain Kathrada's legacy of non-racism. It is vitally important, especially now, that we must never rest. We must be never be satisfied. We must never be comfortable in the fight against racism. There is nothing more dehumanizing, degrading than racism. And it is the responsibility of all of us, but especially you the young, to be in the front line of the struggle against all forms and manifestations of racism. The Ahmad Kathrada Foundation has declared that it aims to have more than 100 youth clubs throughout the country by 2029, the year which will mark 100 years since the birth of the late Ahmad Kathrada. The foundation's executive director, Nashin Bolton, says through this initiative, they hope to assist in eradicating poverty and racism in the country. He says they take pride in the school because it's where Kathrada studied in the 1960s. So that by the time we get to 2029, which would be when Amin Kastrada's centenary is, we want to have at least a hundred youth clubs across this country of young people like yourselves who believe that you must still work to make it better for those whose lives have not yet improved in this country. Throughout his life, Katrada remained strong and inspired both young and old, something that seemingly will live for a long time and for many generations to come. I'm Abongile Dumago in Johannesburg. It's 8.30 Central African time and our headlines up next with Jalani Tulo. Thank you, Lulu. Making headlines, all Zimbabwean police have been recalled from leave to be deployed outside the Constitutional Court and around the country. A tanker has gone missing off the coast of Gabon with 17 Georgian soldiers on board. And finally, developments in two separate court cases in the United States involving figures previously close to President Donald Trump have cast a shadow over his presidency. I'll have details at 9 o'clock. Thank you, Jalani. Heartfelt condolences and tributes continue to pull in for Mama Veronica Sobukwe, widow of the PAC founder Robert Sobukwe, affectionately known as Mama Azania. She passed away shortly after being discharged from the Midlands Hospital last week. She was 91 years old. She has been remembered in a memorial service in her hometown of Khafrened in South Africa's Eastern Cape province. Friends, family, congregants and PAC members are expected to turn out in large numbers for her funeral, which will be held on Saturday. Anda Ngonji reports. Zondeni Veronica Sobugwe, widow to the PAC founder, Robert Mangalisa Sobugwe, passed away on Wednesday last week in Khrafreinet in the Eastern Cape. She was born on the 27th of July in 1927 in KwaZulu-Natal. 
She was an activist who led a strike at the Victoria Hospital in Lovedale, Alice, that subsequently led to her expulsion from the nursing college. Her friends, family, colleagues and fellow activists now share a bittersweet memory of her as they prepare to bid her an eternal goodbye. Her family says it will forever be grateful for the role she played in their lives and also the country as a whole. I will, I will remember Ugogo as an icon she was. I will remember her humbleness. I will remember uh, because Gogo was, was kind but very strict. Yeah, um, my mom was a, my grandmother was a very kind and caring and humble person. Um, I think she it's important to remember that she made a lot of sacrifices for her family but also for the country. Pastor at the Sobukwe Memorial Church, Olani Nomanza says he will remember Mama Sobukwe as a prayer warrior whose heart was always in a good place. One of the values that she instilled in us was honesty. She, in one of her principles, she believed Kakulu about fighting for injustice. As we would recall in 1949, she was one of the leaders who fought for the injustice that was experienced by Inessis then. Sobugwe, who had opened a frail care center, the Victoria Sobugwe Old Age Home has also been remembered by her employers as a very loving person who gave herself into serving the community of Khafreinat. Employee Andrew Mengo had this to say. Veronica Sobugwe formed this center uh, throughout the suffering of the community and uh, she decided to help all the people here in the area of Khafreinat so, so that they can have something to eat and something to take them to the hospital. And uh, she had to, to put the combi. The combi must pick up the older people, take them to the hospital. A special official funeral, Category 2, will be on Saturday in Khraf Reynet with dignitaries like President Cyril Ramaphosa in attendance. I am Anna Nonji in Khraf Reynet. The United Nations Entity for Gender Equality and the Empowerment of Women, also known as UN Women, says it will take more than 200 years to achieve gender equality in South Africa if nothing is done to speed up efforts to attain such equality. It has also called on the religious community to lead the fight against domestic violence in South Africa. UN Women believes religious leaders have the power to change toxic masculinities. Tabilem Bela reports. UN Women says it's a shame that South Africa is known as the rape capital of the world. Anne Shongwe of UN Women in South Africa says the religious sector has the power and influence to change the picture of gender-based violence. She says their research shows that close to 90% of South Africans go to some religious institution or the other. She was speaking at the Southern African Catholic Bishops' Conference Interfaith Dialogue on Positive Masculinity in Pretoria. But if 90% of us are in the church whichever form of faith, and 30%, 20%, 50% are perpetrators of violence, then the statistics say that you're sitting in the church. What I see as a massive opportunity, and the reason that we work with faith-based organizations, is that you, more than anyone else, especially the leaders of the different faiths, have the opportunity to shape different practices, different types of relationships between men and women than anybody else, even the government. Shongwe says at the current rate, it will take over two centuries to achieve gender equality.
You know, according to our reports, if we continue to do business as we are doing now, gender equality will happen in 217 years. It will take us 217 years for a woman to be paid equal to a man for the same job. It will take us 217 years for us to no longer count out one out of three women uh, are abused. It will take us 217 years before we have equal access to education across the world for a young girl and a young boy. Sonke Gender Justice has highlighted the absence of fathers and positive role models as contributing towards toxic masculinity that is prevalent in South Africa. Reverend Bafana Kumalo is from Sonke Gender Justice. When you read the media, the representation of men is negative generally. Men are known as rapists. Men are known as murderers. Men are known as people that abuse their partners and spouses. But as we all know, that is not the sum total of what manhood is about. That representation of what we called, quite appropriately, positive masculinity, you never find in our newspapers and in our media, because it's not sexy enough. We like the gross, we like the negative, we like the sinful, to use a theological term. The South African Council of Churches says women and children are under siege and has challenged government to be tough on criminals who perpetuate abuse. Reverend Gift Murani is from the South African Council of Churches. The state also should make sure that our early childhood development centers also provide moral guidance at that level. If we really want to bring change, we need to sit with the Justice Department and ask difficult questions. Why people who abuse women are given bail? Why people who kill women and children are being allowed technically to be released? Bishop Abel Gabuza from the Catholic Church in South Africa says they will ensure the message to end gender-based violence filters through to communities. As such, conversations should not be limited to Women's Month only. I'm Tabile Mbele for SABC News in Pretoria. Remembering Mama Albertina Sisulu. We will say whatever we are expected to say by the people. And we are aligning ourselves with the struggle for the people. We are aligning ourselves with the struggle for the liberation of the oppressed people of this country. Hashtag Mama Sisulu Centenary. Making women more aware of career opportunities in the maritime sector and changing perceptions that the sector is only suited for men dominated discussions at the Ocean Economy Southern Africa Conference in South African in the South African coastal city of Durban. The two-day conference brings together stakeholders within the maritime industry to discuss ocean sustainability, the blue economy and trade. Prabashni Mudli reports. Gender inclusion is slowly becoming a reality in the maritime sector. This is according to the chief executive at Transnet Port Terminals, Nozipo Sitole, who addressed the Oceans Economic Southern Africa Conference. Sitole says currently women in the maritime sector make up just 5% of participants and supporting businesses. She says that while the sector has previously been dominated by men, there is proof that women have the potential to flourish in this industry. Well, the major advances have been uh, firstly going into an environment that was previously male-dominated, and I'm talking here about 
women who have gone into the engineering sector and heavy equipment and manufacturing and operations as a whole. That has basically demonstrated that women can go into these sectors and be very successful. Sitwale says as more and more women learn about opportunities within the sector, a keen interest is growing among women. As we disseminate more information about what the ocean's economy is about and the different areas that are part of the ocean's economy, more and more women are actually getting excited about and wanting to be productive in this sector. As we build South Africa into a maritime economy, there are now opportunities where women can actually find their own niches uh, instead of going into the traditional areas where women have been, like psychology or human resources. Meanwhile, Program Manager at the South African Maritime Safety Authority, Sizwe Nkukwana, says traffic around the South African ports needs to translate into economic opportunities for citizens. He was speaking on the theme of prioritizing maximum security for growth opportunities, development and trade. One of the nice things about South Africa and its geopolitical positioning is that we are quite literally in the center of the universe. Every single boat that is over a certain size has to come past South Africa. And so in terms of the global trade, quite a huge significant amount of traffic and trade flows past South Africa. How do we capture this? And how do we make sure that it translates to economic benefits for Durban, for KZN, for South Africa? While many of the speakers touched on ocean sustainability, Nkukwana says this should not be at the expense of economic development and job creation. South Africa does a lot of work, especially led by the Department of Environmental Affairs, to ensure that we maintain pristine environments. So maritime protected areas are quite a key mix in terms of our maritime domain. But what we always have to be worried about and also be sure about is that we're not compromising economic development and poverty alleviation. Quite a lot of the protected areas are very close to the most impoverished areas in the country. Delegates at the conference will also discuss the use of satellite technology to manage natural resources and putting in place sustainable development goals for increased ocean activities. I'm Prabhashni Mudli in Durban. Going back in time to today in 2010, all 33 Chilean miners trapped deep underground for 17 days are found alive. A probe sent some 688 meters deep into the collapsed mine early in the morning comes back with a handwritten note, all 33 of us are fine in the shelter. Today in history in the year 2010. The future of payments is changing. Korean headquartered consumer electronics group Samsung has launched a payment app which lets users use smartphones instead of their bank card to make a payment. The mobile payment and digital wallet service offers the ultimate flexible payment solution that features the benefits of both a physical and mobile wallet to make in-store purchases safer and simpler. Channel Africa's Ntlantla Matlangu has more. Samsung Pay has been active in several countries including the US, the UK and South Korea. 
It is a platform that allows users to pay for goods and services simply by waving their device near a cash register instead of swiping a credit card or giving out one's payment information. More from Craig Flesher, Vice President of Integrated Mobility for Samsung South Africa. Samsung Pay is a technology we've done uh, probably four years ago uh, in Korea and in the United States. What this basically does is it it doesn't keep a a record of your card on your phone. It it makes it safer, firstly, so it keeps an image of your card on the phone, but that image is what we call tokenized, so it is encrypted and tokenized, so it's not even your card details. And then what it also does is if you are making a payment, every single time you have to authenticate either through biometrics, what are biometrics, either fingerprint or iris or a PIN, and that means that it's secure and it is safe and even if a device gets stolen no one can get into that application and do anything because they don't have your eyes and they don't have your fingerprint so it's even more safe than a your standard banking application that you have on your smartphones today the korean consumer electronics group also unveiled its latest mobile device the galaxy note 9 Deemed as the game changer, the Note series is Samsung's showcase for premium technology and industry-defining innovation. Craig Flesher, Vice President of Integrated Mobility for Samsung South Africa, says the impact mobile technology has had on business in the last decade is extraordinary and continuously evolving, driven by converging technology that fuel innovation. It is the powerhouse of devices this literally is the game-changing smartphone out there today the s pen is the next step that i wanted to talk about so what we've done is is we've refined this from a pure writing instrument only now to be a device that you can interact with the unit as a remote control you can use it to take photographs this is why i would tout this as the most powerful uh, galaxy we've ever made we're partnering with the partners that matter to you as consumers. So we're listening to what you want and we're partnering with those and bringing you better access to that content, better access to that technology and better access to making your life more enriched. There was Craig Flesher, Vice President of Integrated Mobility for Samsung South Africa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Kamasangu in Johannesburg. It's 8.45 and our economics update up next with Tabitha Luhoko. Good morning. Former Stanhoff International's CEO Marcus Juster and a former Chief Financial Officer Ben Lachranj will be subpoenaed to appear before South Africa's Parliament Standing Committee on Finance next Wednesday. This comes after National Assembly Speaker Balegambete authorized a summons that was requested by the committee following unsuccessful attempts to have them appear before the committee. Mbete has invoked Section 56 of the Constitution which empowers a Parliament to summon any person or organ of state to give evidence before it. Mercedes Besant reports. Parliament says Justa and Lachranj will be subpoenaed to give evidence before the committee. The institution says Mbete's decision to grant the summons comes after she obtained a legal opinion. Parliament says Mbete has now given the committee the thumbs up to continue conducting their inquiry into the nature, causes and consequences of what Parliament calls the sudden collapse of Steinhoff's share value. It says this resulted in the loss of billions of investor and pension funds, but also 
posed a threat to thousands of jobs in South Africa and abroad. Parliament spokesperson Moloto Motapo says the inquiry is not meant to be a criminal or civil investigation into Steinoff or its employees. Mercedes Besend, SABC News, Parliament. Lesotho companies still lag behind in the comparative ratio of jobs against South African companies in the implementation of the second phase of the Lesotho Highlands Water Project. This came out at a recent workshop in the capital Maseru, organized by the Lesotho Highlands Water Development Authority to conscientize local construction companies about compliance with the tender requirements. The workshops are being held throughout this month and September in different districts of Lesotho and will help increase the chances of local companies participating in the project. The South African government has set up a team of technical experts to find ways of bringing down the price of fuel. Energy Minister Jeff Khatebe told the Parliament's Energy Portfolio Committee on Tuesday that the team is expected to complete its work by the end of September and that the Parliament will and the public will be informed. Uh, Khatebe was briefing the committee on what the South African government was doing to address the high fuel price and its impact on the country. There are technical teams from the Department of Energy and National Treasury that have started to work on the review of the fuel price structure, as was indicated by the President about two months ago when the economic cluster had to meet to deal with these matters, to see whether there can be any adjustments that can be made. Switzerland's sugar industry dates back to 1968 when the country gained independence. Fifty years on, the industry still remains reminiscent of a primary industry, with the main products being just sugar and molasses. The Swaziland Sugar Association admits that that brings, or rather that things have changed, because sugar cannot be 50 years old and remain a primary industry. In a bid to provide a lasting solution to the challenge and encourage Ugandans to save and invest back home, organizers of the Ugandans in North America, UNAA Causes Festival, one of the two major umbrella bodies for Ugandans living in North America, have invited finance, real estate and money transfer experts from Uganda to sensitize Ugandans on in America on new and convenient investment options in Uganda. The UNAA Causes Uganda Festival is scheduled to take place between August and September in the United States of America. The organization says it has this year partnered with organizations that can provide people in the diaspora with financial services and advice to make it easy for them to invest back home. The US dollar trades at 10.52 Botswana Pula. It's at 10.11 in Zambia. In BRICS currencies, it's trading at 3.98 Brazilian roll, at 67.18 Russian ruble, and at 69.70 Indian rupee, 6.83 Chinese yuan, 14.40 to the South African rand. 77 pence to the British pound, 86 cents to the euro, gold $1,195, platinum $794 per ounce. The price of Brent crude oil is at $72.85 a barrel. From an African perspective, I'm Tabisolo Hoku.
Our sports update up next with Figile Lingwati. Now, sports update this hour. We begin with football news stories making headlines. South African Football Association SAFA is forging ahead with its plans to launch the National Women's League next year, and they are targeting April for kickoff. This was confirmed by SAFA Vice President Riali Duaba during the Houting League of the Women's Football Roadshow that took place at SAFA House last night. Liduaba says one of the things they are focusing on now is to secure a main sponsor, as the aim is to also have a monthly grant for the teams to be able to pay players. You need a sponsor for the league. Uh, definitely, you 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 would not run a proper national league without a sponsor. But we have touched different sponsors. We have spoken to them. There is an understanding that we must bring the final document. When we have spoken to all the stakeholders, we have spoken to Lotto. I have said that we have spoken to the provincial government. In fact, we have met with the minister and and the DG, and we have told them this is what we want an assistant from you for this league to be able. And 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 they were very frank with us that if we do it after April, we are able to create that grant that we will give to the provinces to be able to cater for that. Okay. The initial plan is to have a 16-team league, but it will cost around $4 million US dollars to run the league, while 12-team league will cost to $2 million US dollars a season. Ludaba also says the technical sponsorship could be wrapped up soon. Well, when you start something everywhere, you must start somewhere, you know. The, the principle is that we must have a 16-team league. That's the principle. We have agreed with every province. But we say we have looked at the budget. Finance has given us the option, three options. The first option is to play two games as a festival in one province, go to another province, go to another province. The second option is to play one game per province and go again. The third uh, option is to play the league, like the ABC Muzib. The, the budget, it's, 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 um, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. The league, it, it will not happen. The one league, it might be a difficulty to get a sponsor, but we believe the festival with two games, it's possible. If we get government coming on board, we're already talking to a technical sponsor for clothing. I'm sure we'll close that deal by tomorrow. We, we are 100% sure we'll have that. And in local football, South African Premiership side, Highlands Park will be gunning for their first victory of the season against the defending champions, Mamelodi Sundowns, at Loftus Stadium in Pretoria tonight. And Highlands captain, Tapua Kapini, says it will boost their morale if they beat the reigning champions. You know, like uh, we've been talking about this game, uh, you know, um, as players, you know, you know what... Uh, this is a big game. It's uh, the NFT champions and the PSL champions. So it's going to be interesting, you know. It's not going to be easy game. As you know, they are African champions as well. Uh, they are participating in CAF. So they've got depth in their team as well. So we're not going to take it lightly. We're going to take it fully, you know, uh, knowing that we're going to play a good team. This football, anything can happen, you know, uh, we, what we want is a win, you know. Then we can boost our confidence. Uh, and imagine if we can beat Sandons. You know, it's going to, to be one of those games that uh, can take our confidence forward. So all out, we're going all out. All we need is three points. We're not going to go backwards. We need three points all out. Finally, Tiger Woods is aiming to cement his claim to place in the U.S. Ryder Cup team as he prepares for this week's Northern Trust Open in New Jersey.
That's a sport news this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories in Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa Ebola death toll in the DRC rises to 55 and SADC leaders vow to eliminate malaria in the region. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumutu Ramagaza and Jane Rabutata, technical producer Revelino Ibrahim and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us.